You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. If you're empowered with your money, chances are you're saving and investing and planning for your future. But are you budgeting the way you should be? Learn more at planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. I truly believe that once you have claimed your own confidence, you stop worrying so much about what everybody thinks. I'm sure there are a ton of people who think I'm bossy. There are a lot of people who probably think a lot of things about me, but I'm living the life I want. I'm creating the life I want for my family, and I'm unapologetic about that. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. It is a long-running stereotype that women are not as confident as men. And while building confidence is always a good thing, I gotta say, I think confidence has become kind of a loaded word for women. We are told that we need to lean in and be assertive to get that raise or promotion. But if we lean in too hard, then we come off as bossy. We're told we need to sometimes act more like men to get people to listen to us, but we also get pushback if we don't act as caring or sensitive as women are supposed to be. And there is research to back this up. I read this study the other day from the American Psychological Association that found that female leaders are more likely to be labeled as confident if they're also humble, social, and sympathetic, a.k.a. stereotypically feminine. And if they aren't feminine enough, then they run the risk of being called not even assertive, but aggressive. In other words, women have to have all the best personality traits people expect from both men and women to succeed. All of this has turned confidence into a tightrope that women have to walk, which only makes it more difficult for us to truly feel good about ourselves. If you are constantly worried about being confident, then how can you be confident 
in the moment. The Harvard Business Review interviewed dozens of male and female executives, and the vast majority of women they spoke to saw building confidence as a challenge they had to overcome in the workplace. The men they spoke to, it wasn't even an issue. They didn't worry about appearing confident at all. In fact, the only times the men they spoke to even mentioned confidence were to comment on the lack of confidence they saw in their female colleagues. If I sound like I'm getting angrier and more frustrated by the moment, I am. Which is why today we are putting together the ultimate guide to confidence so that you can learn not only how to project it to other people, but truly feel it without having to pretend to be anything that you're not. And I've got an amazing guest here to share all of her strategies. Lydia Finette, for 25 years, has been ambassador for the Auction House Christie's and the founder and CEO of the Lydia Finette Agency, which trains up-and-coming auctioneers. She's led auctions for more than 600 different organizations around the world, raised more than a billion dollars for nonprofit causes, and she is no stranger to taking up space on a stage and owning it. She is also the author of the best-selling book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, and most recently published a new wonderful book called Claim Your Confidence, which is all about how to overcome fear and become the most confident version of yourself. She's the host of the Claim Your Confidence podcast as well, which I am happily making an appearance on. So be sure to check it out. Lydia, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be on the show. Lydia, let me start with you and how you became an auctioneer. I got to tell you that one of my favorite movies, no surprise, is Something's Gotta Give. And I <laughs> love it. I just love it when Amanda Peet, who's playing Diane Keaton's daughter, says she's got to go off and sell millions of dollars worth of art as if it was nothing. Right. And, and I know that that is something that you have done over and over and over again. How'd you get there? Well, I started working at Christie's when I was in college as an intern. I had read an article in Vanity Fair magazine about an auction world. I didn't know anything about it. My parents were not art collectors. But I became really fascinated with this story of Princess Diana's dresses being sold at a place in New York on Park Avenue called Christie's. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana, and I've always had this big dream about pretty much everything you can imagine in life. And it all starts with me reading something or hearing something that captures my imagination. And then I kind of have to follow that thread as far as I can. And so this thread led me to an internship at Christie's. And I ended up interning one year in college and then right after I graduated and that internship turned into a job that lasted over 20 years. It was in my first job in the events department that I really saw auctioneers and specifically charity auctioneers, which is what I specialize in. We would accompany the charity auctioneers to galas all over New York City. They were so elegant and amazing. And we would stand in these rooms packed with thousands, like a thousand people in black tie, you know, and it was really what I wanted. I mean, it was really what I read in that article. And I saw the auctioneers up there and I remember thinking, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be down here spotting in the crowd, helping people find, I don't want to help the auctioneer find bidders. I want to be the auctioneer. But I wasn't really the, what an auctioneer looked like. You know, I was a young woman in my 20s and the auctioneers were usually seasoned executives who'd been at the company for over 10 years, all male at that point, and usually in black tie. And so 
about four years into my career, there were a series of auctioneers who missed auctions. And so whereas you always had to be an officer to try out before this year, I was just in that sort of lucky time where there was a year where a lot of people missed their auctions and they needed a deeper bench. And so they threw open the auctioneer tryouts to the entire company. And anyone could try out as long as you'd been at the company for a year. And I remember going down to, there's a room, there are different auction rooms, but this one was called the Woods Room, which is a smaller auction room, and sitting with about 20 plus people. And the tryouts lasted four days. And they had a professional auctioneer who was there, and then they had an auctioneer and an acting coach. And we were just kind of eliminated day by day. And, you know, on the second day, it was like my boss was cut, and then my boss's bot was cut. And it was just like this realization on day four that I was going to be one of the last people standing, not even the last man standing, like one of the last people standing. And they passed four of us. The other three people were men, and they were all older than me. Two of them were not much older, but two of them were British. And that was kind of how it started because I wasn't what people thought I was supposed to be as an auctioneer. I just ended up taking all the auctions that nobody else wanted to take, which turned out to be a ton of auctions. And practice is an amazing thing because over time you practice and practice and you get really good at what you are learning to do. I can totally relate to what you're saying because I actually think I got my job on the Today Show because I didn't look like what they thought you were supposed to look like if you were going to talk about money. You know, the other people were men with gray hair. And I've always felt that it was kind of an advantage to be a woman in a man's world in that way. Has that worked for you? Yeah, you know, in those early days, I think it was not an additive. In that first decade, I would say, because I've been an auctioneer for over 20 years, in that first decade, it was not necessarily a good thing. And I definitely had people say to me many times, no, but we're looking for the auctioneer or the guy. You know, like, where's the man who's supposed to be on stage? I was like, no, it's still me, guys. There's really only one person coming. Like, no one else is here to save you. I'm here. It's 10 o'clock on a Saturday. I'm going to get on stage. But it kind of goes back to that confidence piece. I didn't have a lot of confidence at that point. You know, I would get on those stages. Things didn't always go that well. I was trying to be an older British gentleman because at the time, Christopher Burge, who's this incredible auctioneer, was the gold standard. And so I would get up and I would would affect this sort of very staid pose and I would act very, very, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like reserved and kind of like you would if you were selling a Picasso, but I wasn't selling Picassos. I was selling puppies at 11 o'clock at night that nobody really wanted to buy, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't the same thing. And about 10 years into my career, I had this moment where I was very sick on a Saturday, but I was taking the auctions that nobody wanted to take. So nobody else was going to take that auction. And I went to take the auction. And I remember sitting stage right and just feeling so shaky and ill. And I got up on stage and instead of being this sort of British persona, I was just myself. And I started cracking jokes and people started laughing. And I remember thinking, maybe this doesn't have to be so serious. You know, these people are not expecting me to stand up here and sell them art. Like they just want to be entertained. And that was kind of how it all started for me. That night was really the catalyst for a change in my style where I I kind of became in on the joke. Nobody really wants a charity auctioneer on stage. They certainly don't want you up there for a long period of time. And if they don't think that they're looking at someone that they want to be up there, they're like, why would we even listen? So I was like, what if I approached it like that? What if I talked about the fact that I was a woman who was on stage and I wasn't who people were expecting? And I had three pregnancies. Like, what if suddenly I was talking about my pregnancies on stage and how people didn't want me there because I was going to have a baby, you know? Right. Um, And people responded to that and they liked it. And then they'd come back the next year and ask about the babies. And then it became a differentiator in a good way. So to your question about being that first, then all of a sudden people were like, where's the woman? 
where is the woman I saw? I liked her. I liked her style. She was different. And then it became an additive. So I'd say the first decade, not so much. But now I love it. I love being the first. You know, I'm the first car auctioneer now. I take collectible car auctions, and it's such a blast. During that first decade, before you were sort of feeling yourself, you still had to get up on that stage and try to convince people to part with their money, which in and of itself takes a lot of confidence, right? When we're trying to negotiate for a job, when we're trying to negotiate for a car, it's hard to negotiate over money. Where did you find that confidence to just keep standing up there? At the very beginning, I could always remember that it was going back to charity. That at the end of the day, the harder I push, the more is it's somebody's going to benefit from that. And because I've been doing this for so long, I remember going to an incredible organization, Mershka Hargitay's Joyful Heart Foundation, which raises money for people who are victims of sexual abuse or domestic violence and really hard topics. I mean, you know, I would cry every time listening to the stories before I got on stage. And I remember going back one year, and I think this was probably my eighth or ninth year, and her husband, Peter, who's such a wonderful guy, said to me as we walked in, I was like, God, this is amazing. Like, look what you've done. And he's like, your skill built that building. Do you realize that? Like the money and the paddle raise that we do at the end of the night is what built that building. And of course, I started to cry because I am such a crier. But so I think that always for me is the, where I gain my confidence. But I mean, now when I get on stage, I'm fearless. It's just such an adrenaline rush for me. And I get up there and I see the audience and I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're in for. Like, I am about to make you spend so much more money than you ever thought possible. And I will say too, Jean, and I'm sure you've seen this in your time, especially when you're speaking with people, a community of people have incredible power. And I took an auction last night and, you know, I'm standing on stage and they told me going in they thought it was going to be a really difficult crowd, to which I always reply, I'm a charity auctioneer. Every crowd is a difficult crowd. <laughs> but in this case, I was standing up there with a number in my mind. I had a target. And at every point, I would challenge the audience. You know, we were at $90,000, and I wanted to get to $200,000 raised for this organization. And we were at $90,000, and I was asking people to give at the $10,000 level. And I looked to the crowd, and I said, out of 1,000 people, is there one person here who was thinking maybe they wanted to give $100, but in fact actually wants to give $10,000. And everyone kind of laughed. And I said, all right, well, I just wanted to see. And maybe if we just hold for one more second, somebody will get us to that $100,000 number. What do you think? Maybe if we cheer, somebody will feel inspired. And I really leaned on the audience. And sure enough, five seconds into cheering, this guy in the front row raised his hand for $10,000. And it's amazing wow. as, a, as an auctioneer to be able to really take that energy and direct it and get people to give more than they thought they were going to. And so that's where confidence comes from, watching something like that happen and knowing it can. You turned these experiences into a book, Claim Your Confidence. And it's much more wide-ranging than getting people to give money in a charity auction. It's really taking what you've learned and applying it to life. Why did you write this book now? Because when I was on book tour for my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, during the Q&A, there was always someone who asked me about confidence. I mean, you've written 13 books. This was my second, so I have a ways to go. <laughs> but when I was thinking about the questions that were being asked, imposter syndrome, why do you feel confident? How do I become confident? All of these things were coming when I was on the book tour, and this is at the end of 2019. And so in 2020, I thought to myself, 
okay, I think it's time to write the second book. And this needs to be a book on confidence, right? I did not see the global pandemic coming. I don't know if you saw that. I did not see that coming. No. So, yeah. No, definitely um, not. Definitely did not see that. Became a homeschooling mom of three running a global team and also running a school cafeteria in my house at the same time and completely did not think about writing the book again. But then as we got further and further into COVID, August, September, and I was seeing these old things in my my own life happening, I took a 40% pay cut. My husband lost his job. I'm literally talking about every side hustle I've ever had. I'm just like, digging into it to try to make sure that we're not digging into our savings and that we can stay in New York and this life that we build is not going to crumble overnight because of where we are. I remember thinking to myself, like, if I'm going through this as someone who's confident and as someone who has savings and has spent my life really informing myself about finance and understanding money and where I'm going in my life and set these goals and keep moving forward— People around me who do not have that kind of strength right now must be falling apart. And sure enough, that's what I was getting over DMs. That's what I was seeing in LinkedIn. I feel like I have no confidence. I had confidence, but I lost my job. I had confidence, but I had to take a step back from work because I'm a mom and my husband's job came first because he makes the money. You know, And I realized there was a white space. Mm-hmm. And that's where you write as a writer. And I just went straight into it. And I felt like, you know, the stories that I tell in this book are going through COVID. It's all real time. And it's written up until the really the last month of 2021 when my entire family was in a really horrendous car accident. You know, I fractured my spine. I broke seven ribs. My children were in the back seat. I woke up to them screaming. My husband shattered his wrist. It was about as horrific as you can possibly imagine. And I realized even in that moment that all these things, all these moments I've had over the course of my life to build confidence would serve me well, reconstructing our life after that as well. And that's really what the book came to be. Well, we are going to dig into all of those things because you've made it really tactical, which I love. You've put together a real step-by-step plan for getting out of imposter syndrome and and building the confidence that you need to get you not just through work, but through life. So we're going to take it piece by piece when we get back from a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. You're saving, you're investing, and you're ready to embrace a bright financial future. But when was the last time you took a look at your budget? It may be time for you to prioritize different saving strategies and what they mean for your overall financial future because knowing exactly how your budget is allocated can make all the difference when it comes to your financial health and wellness. Learn more at planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. We are back with Lydia Finette, auctioneer, author of Claim Your Confidence, One of the biggest roadblocks that women face when they're talking about confidence, especially if they're working in a male-dominated field, is imposter syndrome. A a study by KPMG found 75% of women executives have experienced this during their careers. And I know, Lydia, you've got this four-step process using the acronym SLAM, which (laughs) I think feels very appropriate, for fighting back. Can you take us through it? Yeah, absolutely. So slam, because I'm an auctioneer, is what I do with my gavel when I walk out on stage, and it sort of summons that confidence that I need. So slam starts with S, which is stop counting yourself out. 
I'm sure, and Jean, I'm sure you're nodding, nodding along as I say this, but how many women have you heard over the course of your life count themselves out before they even have a chance to get in the room? You know, I always say, I use this example in my book of my mom, where is the most talented woman in the in the entire world, and yet is the first to self-select, and if she's listening, she will totally nod when I say this, when someone says, oh, you know, would you like to join this committee, or would you like to do this? She's like, why would they have me? I'm like, they would be so lucky to have you. Why do you not let yourself be put forward? Why do you not put yourself forward, more importantly? But first and foremost, S, stop counting yourself out. The L is for listen. I know a lot of us tend to put an ending on a sentence that never existed. And for some reason, it's always negative, right? So I think about it when I go back to my maternity leaves from Christie's. I would come back from maternity leave and somebody would say, hey, it's so great to see you back here. My gosh, with those babies at home, we must be exhausted or something like that. And I would think to myself, oh my God, first of all, I must look so tired. They don't think I'm doing my job. And then they know I have babies at home. So if I have babies at home, then I'm not working. I'm going to start working harder. I'm going to come in on the weekends. You know, and it just was this negative spiral of things that the person had not said, but that I had created as a storyline to make myself feel this imposter syndrome, to almost like feed into it in many ways. And frankly, if the person had meant that, then whatever, that's on them. That's their life. That has nothing to do with me. Why not put that into a positive spin? The next time somebody says something, like if somebody said that to me, like, you know, wow, you're back here with those kids at home, like, well done, or, you know, something like that, instead of taking them and listening to what they said, which is, you know, thanks for coming back to work and you have kids at home and saying like, wow, you must be a great multitasker, Lydia. Congratulations on getting here and getting out the door with all that going on at home. Say something like that instead of going down that negative spiral. The A, and I always like to say that sometimes this burns for people, but accept that there are no gold stars in life, right? You're an adult. Nobody pins Mm -hmm. a gold star on you for going to work. You don't get a gold star for doing an extra load of laundry. This is your life. Give yourself a gold star. You know when you've done something well. You don't need other people to tell you how to live your life, and you don't need their affirmation to live the life you want. So stop looking around. That one can be really, really hard. I mean, even at this point in my career, I find myself, you know, was that okay? Was that okay? Was that okay? And you know what? It's okay. Even if it's not okay, it's okay. But also, and I would be curious to ask this, you probably know if it went well right? I generally know if it went well. Yeah. And I still want the affirmation. So I'm going to have to check myself on that. (laughs) I think it's okay to ask, but just to also have the gut check to know that you probably know too. You know, I say that when I get off stage, I have five auctions this week. And the first one this week, I thought went fine. I was tired. I wasn't feeling as on as I can be. And then the second night, it felt like a 10 out of 10. And I can tell you that honestly, and I would say that to anyone who asked, you know, and I feel like that's confidence. Like you get to the point where you're like, I don't need you guys to tell me if that was good or not. I know, you know. And the M? The M is make a point and don't back down. If you know something, don't let people talk you out of what you know. I let people do that to me so many times in my early career, especially as it pertained to charity auctioneering. I would always get into these long conversations about where the auction should be over the course of the evening. I had taken at that point probably 600 auctions, and I would have people who were doing their first auction tell me that it should be at a certain point in the evening when I know it shouldn't. And because I was such a people pleaser, I would always say, oh, yeah, no, of course, whatever you want. Oh, you want me to emcee and do this? And all of a sudden, I'm doing nine jobs in addition to the job I'm supposed to be doing that night. And what I've learned is people respect you more when you know your boundaries. When people say to me, oh, are you going to be the emcee as well as the auctioneer? I'm not. The auctioneer should be 
First time you see me is when that auction starts. I should not be on stage all night. People understand it. They respect it. So make your point and don't back down. Slam. I love that. I think that's true. And I think it's paying attention to your body of knowledge that you have accumulated. You know, people hire you for your expertise. No matter what job you're doing, no matter what level you're at, people are hiring you because they believe that you are good at doing a particular thing. And if you allow yourself to be shoehorned into doing other things or doing it differently than you think it should be done, then why are you there in the first place? Exactly. Exactly. But we do it, right? We're all like nodding along. Yes, of course, I would be happy to do these nine things I don't really want to do because saying no seems worse somehow. Yeah. You write that positivity is a crucial part of the confidence equation. I agree with you. I think positivity, I think optimism, I think resilience, I think they all go kind of hand in hand. But I know there are some people who believe, and they have a point, not everything can be solved through positive thinking. So where's the line? I think, in my opinion, positivity is one of the most important things that we can lean on in life. And I can say this having gone through what we went through and having yeah. to recover from something like that. I think my positive mindset is what pulled me through that. And I even remember going down for my spinal fusion for surgery and being downstairs at sort of one o'clock in the morning in an ER. And the nurse standing next to me said, so how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing pretty well. And she's like, well, you know, we don't often hear that from someone who's going in for her second surgery in you know, less than five days and is having her spine fused at the age of early 40s. I'll say early 40s. And I kind of laughed. And she said, you know, it's funny. I've worked in this ER for 20, 30 years. And she said, I've seen people who've come in your age who have no reason to have anything happen, who literally die in the ER because they just kind of have let go. They're like, oh, there's my body can't handle this. I can't do this. When in fact, the opposite is true. And she's like, and I've seen 85-year-old people walk in here with injuries that should have killed them like the day it happened and be totally fine because they have the attitude to pull them through and they fully believe they're going to walk out of here. And it really was such an affirmation to me about what I believe in positivity. I know not everybody believes it, and that's fine. You don't have to. But if we in life go through life trying to see the good side of things, not you're not Pollyanna. It's not every day. Not every day is great but not always going towards the negative at every opportunity. Not only do you live a better life, you're better for other people. Like we're not alone on this planet. And I like to say to people, if you want to see this put into practice, go into a Starbucks in the morning where the barista is getting looks from every single person there who's been waiting approximately 33 seconds for their frappe latte, you know, like add 15 <laughs> syllables to the end of that. And everybody's huffing and puffing because this person's taking so long with, let's be honest, how fast can a human make coffee? And if you look them directly in the eye while they're frazzled and harassed by all these people and you say to them, hey, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. Watch what happens. Not only did they light up, but watch how they interact with the next person. And this is what I always think about positivity. It's not just about you. Like positivity is about everyone around you because you are literally, you can be the person who shoves someone on the subway and sets their day into a completely negative spiral. And so think outside of yourself. If you can't be positive for yourself, I get it. Days can be hard, but don't be the person who then throws that onto everyone else and ruins everyone else's day. And that's what I go back to on the days when I'm not feeling 100%. You know, if I'm like yelling at my kids or something like that, I'm like, 
who's the common denominator here? <laughs> well, not all three of my kids are having a bad day at the same time. Like, it's me, you know? It's important just looking outside of yourself. I mean, one of the things that happens to us, and I mentioned at the top of the show, is that we have fears associated with being confident or projecting confident. We fear that people are going to think that we're bossy or arrogant. We fear that we might fail on the flip side. How do you deal with both of those things? I truly believe that once you have claimed your own confidence, you stop worrying so much about what everybody thinks. I'm sure there are a ton of people who think I'm bossy. I could probably call my siblings and they would tell you that right now just to get that list started. There are a lot of people who probably think a lot of things about me, but I'm living the life I want. I'm creating the life I want for my family, and I'm unapologetic about that. And that can be seen in a million different ways, but ultimately, who does it matter? It matters to me because this is my life. So... I don't want anybody to look at me and think bad things, but at the same time, that's their life. That's the way that they choose to view me because of something in their life, and I can't control that. So that's my advice. To the extent you can, stop worrying so much about people around you. You know, I, I'll give an example. I posted something on Instagram when I was going on the Today Show to teach Savannah Guthrie to be an auctioneer. I mean, that's a highlight moment in anyone's life, right? That's you know, a fabulous that is, moment. That's a real moment. She's amazing. I was so excited. And I posted, like, be sure to tune in. And a woman who I've known for a really, really long time, like probably 15 or 20 years, screenshot it and accidentally sent it back to me with the word eye roll at the top. And I see you gasp, right? Like, uh, literally, she obviously had not meant to send that to me. That's awful. Yeah, it's not great. But you know what's funny? And I said this to my sister afterwards. I know I'm a confident person because I looked at that and I thought, oof, that's on her. I feel really sorry for her that this is what she thinks when she sees this. And something that I've done, which feels like a highlight moment for me, feels horrible to her. And she's not on the right path in her life if that's the way she feels. And so I sent her a note back and I said, hey, I think you're going to have to send this to someone else because I'm pretty sure it wasn't meant for me. And I gave her like a little XO. Because the, at the end of the day, like, that has nothing to do with me. That's her journey and her path. And that's when I believe, like, I, I see things like that and I realize, like, that's how you claim your confidence. You live your life for you and you understand that not everyone's going to be able to see that and not everyone's going to be able to celebrate that. But that's okay. Good for you. Did she respond? Mm -mm. And I don't think she will. I mean, what's there left to say? And it's okay. I don't take offense to that. That has nothing to do with me. That is her living her life and not being fulfilled by what she's doing. And I can't make that better or worse. So I, I just choose to accept it and know that that's how she feels or she felt that day. And maybe it just hit her in the wrong way and give her grace. Like I would hope someone would give me. After almost 25 years, you gave notice at Christie's. You are starting your own auction house. What does that feel like? And what does it mean? And for all of us who are involved in charities that may or may not have auctions, tell us, how do we find you? And how do we hire you? And how do we get to be a part of this? Yeah, so I am so excited. This is the first time I've actually said this out loud on a podcast. So this is such a thrilling moment. I started the Lydia Finette Agency, which is a boutique auctioneering agency representing best-in-class charity auctioneers and training up the next generation of talent. And essentially what has happened and what I've seen in this field over the past couple of years is that 
People spend so much of their time creating these amazing charity galas for nonprofits. They spend an entire year putting together invitations and flowers and guest lists and themes, and the last person they call is the only person who can make money for them at the gala. The auctioneer can make 30 to 40% more than someone who's not been trained. And if you have someone's uncle on the stage or a weatherman, you have the wrong person. And so I've seen this happen time and time again. And since COVID, people have spread out from New York City, which is a huge fundraising mecca, where there are five or six auctions a night all over the country. And there was a week, probably a couple of months ago, that I got nine calls in a week. And I just realized this is a business opportunity to scale this, to get people who can actually make a fundamental difference for these nonprofits who have been well-trained. I trained 13 classes of charity auctioneers out of Christie's. Many of the auctioneers that I trained are still working on their own today. And to create an elevated platform to do this, one-stop shopping. So it's Lydia Finette Agency. It's LydiaFinette.com. And you basically just reach out to me and I will find the perfect auctioneer no matter what your fundraising needs are. You know, if you want to make... $10,000, fine. If you want to make $20 million, we have auctioneers of all range. And I'll be doing open tryouts twice a year to find new talent as well. That is fantastic. Last question. As you're training those auctioneers, what are the one or two most important things you impart to them in order to convince other people to give you money? First and foremost, the sky is always blue in charity auctioneering, which means that when you go on to that stage, you are never negative, that everybody is celebrated for giving at whatever level they can give. You know, I don't care if you're giving $25 million, I don't care if you're giving $25. The celebration should be the same in the room that night, and you as the auctioneer do that. And then the other thing I always say to people, and this is not only from auctioneering, but this is any public speaker, you bring the energy you want from the room. So you go out on that stage like you have just won the prizes right. I mean, you are big, huge smile, and you get the audience involved. Because at the end of the day, it's all about them and making them feel good and making them want to be included. And that's where you really unlock the dollars. I love it. Lydia, I hope that you'll come back. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much, Jean. I've loved it, and I would love to come back. I'll tell you about the agency as we evolve. (laughs) Before we dive into our mailbag, just a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of Mind Shift. 
the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, joins us. Julia, thank you so much for introducing us to Lydia. She's fantastic. You're so welcome. When I heard her uh, speaking for her book release during Women's History Month, I thought it was awesome. And I was like, oh, my God, her and my mom totally need to do podcasts together. And I walked up to her publicist. So you're welcome. Yeah. Turned out really, really well. And I think um, I'm going to remember a lot of the different things that she had to say about negotiating, about confidence, about owning your own beliefs. She made an impact. So you can expect her to be a, a guest that we invite back again. So you did good. Thank you for that. You're welcome. That's awesome. All right. We've got questions from our listeners. You want to dig in and take us through the first one? Yeah, let's kick to it. Our first question today comes to us from Nancy. She writes, Hi, Jean. My partner and my son have hobbies that they would love to make into businesses, either as side hustles or full-time jobs. They are both artists and have been working on building up a supply of product. I've seen similar work on Etsy, at farmer's markets, on Instagram, etc. How does one go about turning a hobby into a business? What are the tax ramifications? First steps. My partner makes jewelry, and we have a friend who is open to having a corner in her store for his work. When he sells a piece, she would take a cut, and he'd get the rest. This is great, and she'd help him price his items. But I believe he'd need a business license first, and he will have to claim the sales on his taxes. I imagine he can write off much of what he spends on equipment, consumables, etc., maybe even a part of our garage— The big question is with tax ramifications and the commitment of a business license. Thanks for any suggestions or advice, or even just pointing me towards a podcast where you talked about these things. I love your podcast, and I recommend it constantly to any female and male friends. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, and thank you for recommending it. That goes an awfully long way, as you know, so we appreciate it. As far as the business license is concerned... It depends on the business itself. There are certain things that you need licenses for or certifications for, often having to do with things like food. I don't necessarily think that you need a license, for example, for making art or making jewelry. But what I would do is check with your local municipality. Just pick up the phone, give them a call, ask, and they'll be able to tell you what the legal constraints are. What I can talk to you about, though, are how to get started and taxes. And the first thing that I would say about getting started is that they should pursue this as a hobby without quitting any full-time job until they know that it can support them, it can sustain them as a hobby, that it can provide them as a business with as much income as they would need to live, to make contributions to their retirement plans, to put some money away for vacations, to buy health insurance, to do all of those other 
things that you have to do when you are supporting a life. But starting as a side hustle, starting as a hobby in which you try to make money is a great way to go about it. And it's also a really good test case. The way that you go about it is by figuring out, much like your partner has done, where you're going to sell your product, how you're going to market it, and you just start by getting going. Your partner is going to want to make sure, particularly on price, that they are putting a high enough price tag on the product that they're supporting all of the materials that are needed, all of the marketing costs that are needed, the cut that your friend is going to take for putting the jewelry into her store and building in a substantial enough profit margin that it feels worthwhile. That means keeping some books, which is a really important thing to do. Most of the small businesses that I know have just started with QuickBooks. Her money started with QuickBooks. It's like a version of Quicken for businesses, and it helps you keep track of all of those things. And it also, at tax time, really makes the process easier. My niece, Sydney, Julia's cousin, started a business during COVID. She silk screens t-shirts. She put a store on Instagram and and then started a website. She's making decent money, but about three or four months into her venture when she was making thousands of dollars a month, my brother, her uncle, called me and said, could you please talk to Sid about taxes? Because she needs to be putting money away. Otherwise, she is going to owe money at the end of the year. And if she spends it all, she is not going to have it. And so we talked about the fact that For every dollar that is made, you want to take a good 30%, sometimes more if you live in a a particularly high-tax state, and you just want to move it to the side. You want to move it to the side so that when you file taxes, which you have to do if you're making money, you have money to just draw from in order to pay those taxes. In Sid's case, she also wanted to invest in her business. And so we had a tax account and we also opened a separate savings account just for business improvements, business expenses, money that she wanted to invest in inventory. And beyond that, she allowed herself to spend some of the rest of the proceeds. But if you're not careful, You're going to spend either on your business or on your life every dollar that's coming in. And when that tax bill hits, you are going to have a really difficult time. You also, and QuickBooks and TurboTax can help you with this. At some point, you may need to file quarterly taxes. Some small businesses need to do that, but you don't have to necessarily do it out of the gate. So the big piece of advice is just make sure that you are moving money off to the side so that you don't get surprised at the end of the year. But I think this sounds fantastic. Last question you asked was maybe they could write things off, equipment, consumables, maybe even part of our garage. Um, Yes, yes, and yes, right? Equipment can be depreciated. Consumables are more likely expenses that go into building the product. Those aren't write-offs, but they are 
expenses and you take them off before you get to the bottom line. The using of the garage, though, gets a little tricky. At that point, you're getting into home office deduction territory. And what you have to make sure is that the portion of your house that you want to write off is being used solely for the purpose of running the business. It's not kosher with the IRS if you have, say, a second bedroom where guests sleep and you occasionally use that for your office, you can't write that off. So you have to have a designated area that you use for business and business only, and then it's pretty easy to figure out how much you can take off at the end of the year. Make sense, Julia? Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense that I don't even have a follow-up question, so you crushed that one, Mom. Well, (laughs) thank you. And I hope, Nancy, that your partner and your son do as well as my niece has done. She had to actually expand out of her parents' apartment into a rented studio space. And she is actually marketing her business by doing pop-ups around New York City. And that has spread the word in in a really wonderful way. So maybe some some pop-up sales as well. Um, And good luck. Yeah, good luck. Next question, Jules? Our next question comes from Melissa. She writes, what exactly does a financial planner do? What kind of cost am I looking at? Honestly, I'm looking for someone who will help me go through my accounts, see what I have, see my trends in spending, come up with things to cut out, completely build a budget, and check in and help hold me accountable while getting used to things. I changed careers a few months ago and now have a lower pay, but I'm at a place that's better for my mental health. I have not cut my spending to reflect my lower pay, though. I've since racked up a bunch of credit card debt. I have no savings, and I really need a hand in setting myself back up and sticking to a plan to be more responsible. Before you say to cut up my credit cards, I put them far away today. I don't want to officially cut them up until I have a plan, since I have no savings, but I would like to do it within the next few weeks. Does such a person exist? Is that what a financial planner does? Am I looking for too much? Help! I just want to learn how to be more responsible and get out of this hole I dug. Alyssa, thank you so much for writing. And let me just say thank you for waving the white flag. This happened to me when I got out of college. I overspent and I dug myself into a hole and I had to dig myself out. And I've actually coached a lot of people out of the scenario that you're talking about. What you're describing is not exactly what a financial planner does. What a financial planner does is look at these things, but also your investments and help you chart out a path to reach your goals in the future using the money that you're socking away in your retirement accounts and your brokerage firms and other accounts where you have investments. You need a step that comes before the financial planner, and what you've described is exactly what we do in Finance Fix, exactly what we do in Finance Fix. It's a small group coaching program. We put together on a monthly basis groups of generally 15 to 20 women, and you go through the process together. We help you figure out where your money is going today, where it has been going over the past couple of months. We help you figure out where you can make changes to reduce spending and then use that money to either build up 
your savings or pay down high interest rate debt or sometimes both, and then chart out goals for the future that can help you stay on track so that you build up some money that you can invest. And at that point, you're ready for a financial planner. So I would say this person does exist. I'm that person. And my coaches are that person. And go to financefix.com. It's financefix with two X's. Check it out. If you have any questions and you want to follow up, you can email us back at mailbag.com and we can help you. But you can also hit me up on social media and we can help you there. And I think this program is going to be good for you. Our, Our students are saving a couple thousand dollars over the course of the eight week program. And they're really liking the sort of accountability that comes along with working one-on-one with a coach and together doing this with a small group. So I think you'll like it. And Julia, I know this has happened to you too, and you've had to look at your spending. You've had to take a really hard look. Yeah, I think, you know, you said it and maybe some people listening are like, oh, well, of course she has to say that, but I'm your daughter and I've dug myself into a hole. So it happens to a lot of people. And luckily, you're my mom. So I, you know, I didn't have to go to finance fix, but I'm a proof of concept, right? Like, exactly. I highly recommend Alyssa and you'll get out of it. You got this. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, Alyssa, I would not have told you to cut up your credit cards. I'm not a cut up your credit card person. I may put your credit cards in the freezer for a little while person, but closing credit card accounts actually is bad for your credit score because it impacts an important part of your credit score, credit utilization, and you may need that in the future. So let's hold on to those credit cards. Maybe we'll close one or two slowly in the future, but let's get a handle on the problem first. And if you have any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we're going to take a quick break. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. We are back with your money tip of the week. If you've been investing in the stock market over the past year, you know it's been confusing to say the least. We have been dealing with recession fears for a while, and I've been hearing the same question for many of you. What should I do with my money when the market's down? The first thing to do is keep investing. Savvy investing is all about time in the market, not timing the market. The next step is to take a look at your stock allocation and make sure you're not too heavily invested in sectors that don't usually do well during recessions. This includes international and emerging markets, tourism and hospitality, cars and large retailers. All of these sectors tend to underperform when consumers cut back their spending. For more information on the best investing practices for any market, visit us at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lydia Finette for showing us how we can act and feel like the most confident woman in any room. 
If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and VCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios and Chelsea Zhu. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.